So anyway, I, I want to say uh, at the very outset that it's actually very wise of Dorka Institute uh, to factor in a session on geopolitics because I can assure you of one thing, okay? I guarantee you this. No matter what you do, <laughs> no matter where you live, okay? Your life will be affected in one way or another by the biggest geopolitical contests uh, that we have ever seen in human history, okay? This contest that we are about to see unfolding between United States and China is much bigger than all the other contests in history because the amount of power that the United States has accumulated and the amount of power that China has accumulated is far greater than any other great powers of the past. And so this contest will be massive. It's going to rock the world and it will affect all of us, no matter where we live. And you're, you're fortunate. Indonesia is a relatively big country. Uh, Indonesia is somewhere within a middle power and a great power. But still, even so, even with your size, you'll be affected by it. So my goal today is to help you understand why exactly this geopolitical contest has broken out and then also to talk about its implications uh, for Indonesia. So in terms of uh, how, why it has broken out and what is happening, I'm going to divide my remarks into five parts, okay? So in part one, I'll talk about the structural forces driving this geopolitical contest. In part two, I will also describe how mistakes made by both China and the United States have made this contest much worse, of course. And the part three is the one I suspect you are all most interested in, which is who will win this contest, United States or China? Now, if I was in the room with all of you in one room, I would have started the lecture by asking you all, put up your hands. Who thinks the United States will win? Who thinks China will win? But I can't do it. <laughs> since I'm not physically in the same room with you, but I hope Mulya, someday we will have this session in person so I can, it's much better to do a face-to-face -face, uh, interchange uh, with the participants. And so the part, so after part three about who, uh, who will win, I'll talk about part four, about how will other countries choose? Uh, what are the roles of other countries in this uh, contest? For example, Indonesia, I'll discuss it then. What is Indonesia's role in this? And finally, I'll try to end by, by, by talking of practical steps we can take uh, to prevent uh, worst-case scenarios in the U.S.-China uh, relationship. And hopefully, this will, at the end of the time, this will give you a good understanding uh, of the global geopolitical picture. Because as I said, the global geopolitics is always driven by the contest between the world's number one power, which today is the United States, and the world's number one emerging power, which is China. So let me begin by talking about the structural forces driving this contest. And it's important to focus on the structural forces because you notice one thing, I'm sure you noticed this. Huh? Uh, last year, uh, the president, one year ago, the president of America was Donald Trump. This year, one year later, the president is Joe Biden. <laughs> Complete change in American president, no change in policy. <laughs> 
So this shows that personalities don't matter. It's structural forces. And so the, the first structural force, and this is something, and another point I want to make to you is that in geopolitics, huh, nothing is new. <laughs> Everything is like a few thousand years old. Okay? So if you go back and read the Greek historians or the Roman historians, they'll tell you that for thousands of years, whenever the world's number one emerging power is about to overtake the world's number one power, the world's number one power, which today is China, will always push down the world's number one emerging power. And that's why I say it doesn't matter whether it's Trump or Biden, the United States will still try to push China down. And, and, uh, and, and, but of course, what has surprised the United States, I can tell you this, as someone, I lived in the United States for 12, 13 years or so, so I know the United States quite well. What has surprised the United States is how quickly China has bounced back. And I just give you two statistics, okay? One, you know, you can measure economic strength in two ways. One is in purchasing power parity terms, and one is in nominal market terms. In purchasing power parity terms, in 1980, uh, United States GNP was 10 times the size of China, 1980. Maybe just before you were all born or something. <laughs> 10 times. By 2014, 34 years later, uh, uh, China's GNP had become bigger. That was in purchasing power, PPP terms. But in the same time, even in nominal market terms, in the year 2000, 20 years ago, 21 years ago, United States GNP was eight times the size of China. Now it's barely 1.5 times larger. And within 10 years, China's GNP will become larger. And so you can see why the next 10 years are very critical for the US-China relationship. And you notice that one of the few things that Joe Biden said after he took office, he said, China is doing very well. China wants to be number one. And he added, it ain't gonna happen on my watch. That's what Joe Biden said. Of course, if he's a one-term president, then it won't happen. <laughs> But if he's a two-term president, and I hope he's a two-term president because Joe Biden is a much nicer guy than Donald Trump, by the way. Let's, let's hope that Joe Biden stays. We don't want Trump to come back and I'll explain how Trump might come back later on. So clearly, uh, he thinks it won't happen in his watch, but it's going to happen within 10 years. And so within the next 10 years, it's perfectly rational, logical for the United States to stop the return of China. So there's the first structural force. The first one, everybody talks about. Second one, nobody except me talks about. <laughs> I can claim uh, intellectual property on this. And this is what I call the fear of the yellow peril. The yellow peril is a fear of the Chinese people or the yellow hordes that uh, the Western people have had since the 13th century when the Mongols almost took over Europe. And I want you to, ex I, want to ex I want to emphasize a key point here. You know, when you go for an executive education course like this, 
you are taught all the rational things, reasonable things, and then you say, hey, people make life, people make decisions in life on the basis of reason, but they don't. They also make decisions with emotion. And the Western emotion towards China is a subconscious fear that the West doesn't want to talk about, but it is real. And I can tell you it's real because you look at Western literature, they've had novels about Fu Manchu, an evil Chinese man. And, they also, and, they, and I want you to know a small fact, okay? At the end of the 19th century, which is about 130 years ago, the United States Congress passed a bill called the Chinese Racial Exclusion Act. This is 130 years ago, okay. United States already by then said, no, no, we don't want too many Chinese in America. And so they tried to stop it. That reflects the yellow peril dimension that exists in the Western imagination. And the third structural force I want to mention, and which explains the bipartisan consensus in the United States against China. As you know, the United States today is a deeply divided country. The Republicans and Democrats cannot agree on anything. Zero, nothing. But only, they only agree on one thing. Must beat up on China. That's what they agree on. Right? Why? And, and, this, and the reason why, the explanation was given by somebody who's a now a senior advisor to President Biden. His name is uh, uh, Kurt Campbell. And in an essay in the magazine Foreign Affairs about a year ago or two, he said that the United States believe that if the United States engaged China, the United States would open up China's economy. And after the United States opens up China's economy, China's political system would then open up and then China would become a liberal democracy. And after China becomes a liberal democracy, US and China can live happily ever after together in a happy marriage, right? Now that was the belief that Americans had. And of course it was, a, it was a grand illusion. And clearly, as you know, China is not gonna become a liberal democracy anytime soon. And therefore the Americans feel disappointed. And because both Republicans and Democrats feel disappointed, they both agree that this is the time to now stand up to China. So you can see, that this US-China geopolitical contest, and this is my first big point, is not being driven by personalities, is being driven by these three structural forces that I mentioned to you already. But in my part, I want to emphasize also that it's also happening because mistakes made by China and mistakes made by uh, America, United States. And the mistake made by China is that China has alienated the American business community. And this is a fact. That's why in my book, uh, Has China Won with Kacha Show to You, which you can find behind my shoulder, uh, I devote a whole chapter to the mistakes made by China. And, 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 and fundamentally, the big mistake that China made, as I said, was to, to alienate the American business community. Because until recently, Whenever the American president wanted to apply pressure on China, the American businessmen who are not very powerful would say, stop, stop, stop. You know, we're making so much money from China. Don't spoil our big market in China. 
And I'll give you two examples. Uh, the America's biggest car company, General Motors, actually makes more money selling cars in China than it does from selling cars in the United States. That's General Motors. And you take the, the world's, uh, one of the world's two most successful comp uh, European companies, Boeing, Boeing sends biggest market, I think single biggest market uh, after the United States is China, I think. So you can see that clearly in the American business have an interest in stopping this contest. But what is interesting is when the Donald Trump launched his trade war against China in 2017 or 2018, the American business kept absolutely quiet and didn't say a word. And the reason for this is that the Chinese had alienated the American business community who felt that they were being bullied by Chinese officials when they did business uh, in China. And if you want to know what their complaints are about loss of intellectual property, forced technology transfer, you can find out all their, uh, their complaints because if you go to the websites of the US Chamber of Commerce in Shanghai, you go to the website, the US Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, you can see all their complaints, they're all open. And, 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 and the mistake that China made in alienating this uh, American business community because they, they lost the one constituency that could have stopped or, or tried this contest from getting out of So that was China's mistake. But in the case of the United States, the mistake made by the United States in some ways uh, was a bigger mistake because the United States decided to launch a geopolitical contest against China without first working out a strategy. Now, you may think that's absurd. How can the United States, which has got the world's uh, best universities, best think tanks, best newspapers, best journals, how can the Americans be so stupid as to launch a contest without a strategy? Well, I can tell you that one reason why I feel very confident uh, saying that is because the who gave me this insight that America doesn't have a strategy is Henry Kissinger. And I'm sure you've all heard of Henry Kissinger. He's the most famous Secretary of State in, uh, in uh, American history, recent American history. And also, by the way, I want you to know that this month, July 2021, is a very special month for Henry Kissinger. Because exactly 50 years ago, 5-0, Henry Kissinger went to China to launch a new relationship between the United States and China. You know, you, I, I'm sure you know that in the Cold War, it was the United States and Soviet Union were fighting each other. And at first, China was aligned with the Soviet Union. Kissinger, by going to China, stole China away from Soviet Union, and it became United States and China against the Soviet Union. You must know this history, by the way. I, I strongly advise you all to read a lot about this history because history plays a role in geopolitics. And you must know about the Cold War. You must know how the United States got China to join its side because then you understand also some of the disappointment that is being felt by the United States also in this area. So anyway, it was Henry Kissinger, the most famous Secretary of State of the United States, who told me that the United States doesn't have a strategy in dealing with China. 
And of course, that's shown in many ways in the somewhat erratic actions taken by United States against China. And I'll just give you one example. As you know, Donald Trump launched a trade war against China. Now, the goal of the trade war is to weaken the Chinese economy, right? And the question is, has it succeeded? And the answer is no. And I'll just give you one, one statistic, okay? In the year 2009, 12 years ago, the size of the retail goods market in China was 1.8 trillion US dollars. And in the US, the size of the retail goods market was $4 trillion. So US was more than double that of China in 2009. 10 years later, 2019, and 2019 is a very significant year because this is two years after Trump's trade war. So Trump had beaten up on China for two years, launched tariffs, launched sanctions, cut off Chinese companies, you know, prevented American investment in China. He, he, he hit China, he hit China, hit China, hit China. And then after 10 years, China's retail goods market went from $1.8 trillion to $6 trillion, three times the size in 10 years. And United States only went up from $4 trillion to $5.5 trillion. So despite Trump's trade war, China's economy grew even stronger. So it showed you it has failed. Now, when a trade war has failed, what's the first thing you do? You stop it. But you notice that Joe Biden cannot stop the trade war against China, even though it is in America's interest to do this. And so this brings me to my third part about who will win this contest. And you notice that, you know, I've just come up with an article, uh, Mulya, uh, two days ago in a magazine called The National Interest. Uh, I'll ask Carol to send it to you, Mulya. And uh, it's called, the article is called this, huh? Can America Lose to China? Now, it's published in a magazine called The National Interest. The National Interest is one of the most famous magazines in America. This is the magazine that uh, printed for Francis Fukuyama's famous essay, The End of History essay. So it's a very famous, and, 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 and the editor wrote to me and said, Kishore, can you please write this article? Because no American can ask the question, can America lose to China? Because for the American point of view, it's inconceivable. It cannot happen. It's impossible, right? And, and the reason why the Americans cannot conceive of the possibility of losing is because the Americans have won every contest in the last 130 years. So Americans have got used to winning. They defeated Germany in World War I. They defeated Japan and Germany in World War II. They saw off the Japanese economic challenge in the 1980s. The Soviet Union, they collapsed, right? So the United States is used to winning. So when it comes to China, they think, of course we will win. And what reinforces this American conviction that they will win is the belief that this is a contest within a democracy in America and a communist party in China. And the Americans ideologically believe that freedom-loving democracies 
are always perform better than rigid communist party systems. And, and, because that, and that's also how the United States defeated the Soviet Union. The United States was a freedom-loving democracy. Soviet Union was a communist party and United States defeated the Soviet Union. So they say, okay, we defeated the Soviet Union, we can defeat China also. And actually, I don't disagree with that premise. If indeed this is a contest between a, a democracy and a communist party system, then the democracy will win. But what I have done in my book, and I think this is, this is in some ways the biggest contribution that my book makes to uh, Americans and Chinese, is that I, I try to understand the Chinese, the, the, how the uh, uh, American political system is actually functioning. And the American political system, which used to be a democracy, has become a plutocracy. What is a plutocracy? Very simple. Now, as you all know, a democracy is a government of the people, by the people, for the people. So a government of the 100%, for the 100%, by the 100%. That's democracy. That's how people vote in their governments. But America functionally has become a government of the 1%, by the 1%, for the 1%. Now, I, I want to emphasize to you that I'm not the only person saying that America has become a plutocracy. The late Paul Volcker, the head of the Fed, said that the United States has become a plutocracy. The Nobel laureate Joseph Stiglitz has said the United States is a plutocracy. Martin Wolf of the Financial Times has also said that the United States is a plutocracy. And you see what happens when you, when, you, when you have a plutocracy, what happens is that all the increase in wealth and income goes to the top 1% and the bottom 50% don't see their lives improve. And, and, and this is in my book, Has China Won? I'll give you the data. And the United States is the only major developed country where the average income of the bottom 50% has gone down over a 30-year period, right? And that's shocking. And, and, and there's another Nobel laureate called Angus Deaton. He's written a book called Deaths of Despair. And actually, I cite Angus Deaton in my book. And Angus Deaton says that among the white working classes in America, of course, the white working classes are the largest working class in America, there's a sea of despair. And the sea of despair is shown in the fact, if you look at the indicators of social well-being, life expectancy of white working class Americans going down. Infant mortality in white working class families going up. Number of suicides in white working classes going up. All the indicators are showing that the white working classes are very unhappy. And of course, the white working classes showed their unhappiness in 2016 by voting in Donald Trump. Right? That's how Donald Trump got elected. It was the anger of the white working classes against the establishment candidates. And so they voted in an outsider uh, like Donald Trump to kick the insiders like Hillary Clinton, who was seen as an insider uh, politician in Washington, D.C. So clearly, there's a lot of evidence that America has gone from being a democracy towards a plutocracy. 
And by contrast, China, if you look at China, which you know is supposed to be a rigid uh, uh, communist party system, has actually become a meritocracy. And by the way, I hope that the Golka Party will also become a meritocracy like the Chinese Communist Party. Because then you'll become as successful uh, as the Chinese Communist Party without becoming communist, by the way. <laughs> meritocracy has nothing to do with communism. Meritocracy is about how you select the best people to work in government or to lead the society. And the, China, the Chinese uh, Communist Party learned a lot from many other countries, especially from Singapore uh, in this area. And the, the Chinese Communist Party realized that the best way to make the Communist Party strong is to make sure that the best people join the Communist Party. And so today, the Chinese Communist Party has become a high performing institution. And so I give you, I give you an example of how popular the Chinese Communist Party has become, even among young people. Uh, when I was in New York in uh, October 2018, I was doing research for my book on Has China Won? And I had an office in Columbia University and Columbia University gave me, uh, generously provided me with a research assistant who was a brilliant young master's student. And the brilliant young master's student was a young lady from China. And one day I was having coffee with this young lady from China and asking her about her life. And she said she was very happy with the life, but she was very disappointed when she graduated from her high school. So I said, why, why were you disappointed from when you graduated? She said, I was number two in the school. So I scratched my head. I said, number two is very good, right? Your school's got 1,000 students. You're number two. Out of 1,000, you should be very happy. He said, no, 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 no. I was unhappy because only the number one gets to join the Chinese Communist Party. Number two, you cannot not smart enough to join the Chinese Communist Party. So just imagine if Golka Institute can, can say, make a rule that says only if you graduate number one in your high school, can you can join the Golka Party. <laughs> then you can imagine the, the, the brain power that the Golka Party would accumulate uh, as a result. And that's what the Chinese Communist Party has done. And that's why it's a huge mistake for United States to underestimate China. And indeed, if you wanted proof that the Chinese government is much more meritocratic and much more effective than the US government, you got proof of it in the handling of COVID-19 last year, 2020, right? You saw in COVID-19, right? It started in China, but you know, China, at the end of the day, lost 5,000 people, right? Died from COVID-19. The United States lost 600,000 people to COVID-19. So, if, you know, if the United States had managed COVID-19 as well as China, then the number of deaths in the United States would not be 600,000. It would be 1,000. 1,000. 
So 599,000 lives could have been saved if the United States had managed COVID-19 as well as China had. So you can see that's what meritocracy does. It creates deep competence in government. And that's why I think it's a mistake for the United States to underestimate China. But let me now turn to part four of my remarks on how will, what, what do other countries think? And the key point I want to make here is that unlike the Cold War uh, between United States and Soviet Union, uh, as you know, that lasted a long time from 40 years or so, from 1949 to 1989 or so. In that period, when United States had a contest against the Soviet Union, many countries enthusiastically rushed to join the American side. So the European countries joined uh, the American side against the Soviet Union, uh, Japan and South Korea joined the United States against Soviet Union. I can tell you this, by the way, I don't know how many of you know this, but even major third world countries like uh, Egypt, uh, like Turkey, uh, like Pakistan, and even Indonesia, in some ways, uh, was on the American side uh, in the contest against the Soviet Union. So there are lots of countries saying, hey, America, we are with you. But what is interesting is that in this contest between the United States and China, virtually no country in the world, except maybe Australia, okay? The current Australian government is the only one, I think, that is sort of more or less behaving like the deputy sheriff of the United States, to quote the former Australian prime minister. Uh, but everybody else is saying, we want to have good ties with the United States. We want to have good ties with China. And so that makes it much harder for the United States. And that's why you notice that the first thing that uh, uh, Joe Biden has done since he became president is trying to get more and more of the allies to take the America side against China. So he started with the G7 countries. And as you know, at the recent G7 meeting in the United Kingdom, there was a G7 statement that contained some criticisms of China. But I'm told that while publicly the G7 showed unity towards China, privately, many of the European countries told the United States, you know, we want to have, big, have good ties with the United States, but we want to have good ties with China. So take a country like Germany, for example. And Germany is important because Germany is now the fourth or fifth largest uh, economy in the world. And the Germans today, uh, the Germans used to sell more cars in America before and less cars in China. But today the Germans sell more cars in China than they do sell cars in, uh, uh, in the United States. So one in three Volkswagen cars are sold in China. One in four BMWs sold in China. One in four Mercedes-Benz sold in China. One in four Audi sold in China. <laughs> so you don't expect the Germans to give up their biggest market. And that's why I gave you the statistic earlier. Remember I told you about the retail goods market, how the retail goods market has gone up from 1.8 trillion to 6 trillion in China. And that, that's the world's biggest market for cars also. 
So you don't expect the Germans to give up their biggest market for cars just, uh, just because of the United States. And so it's not going to be so easy. So most countries are going to play a hedging bet. But here, the most important point I want to emphasize, especially for the 10 ASEAN countries, as you know, the ASEAN countries, by the way, the most important statistic you need to know about ASEAN countries is that in the year 2000, ASEAN countries' trade with United States was $130 billion, right? And so uh, our trade with uh, China was only $40 billion. So ASEAN's trade with United States was three times, more than three times than with China in 2000. By 2020, U.S. trade with U.S. had gone up, ASEAN's trade with United States had gone up significantly from 130 billion to 300 billion. So it went up a lot, three times. But ASEAN's trade with China went from 40 billion to almost 700 billion. <laughs> more than doubled our trade with United States. So again, how do you expect the ASEAN countries to try a containment policy on their biggest uh, trading partner, which is China. And by the way, I, I, one other surprising statistic that you should know, everybody thinks that China's number one trading partner must be either the European Union or United States, because the United States and European Union are much bigger economies than ASEAN uh, is. But surprisingly, China now does more trade with ASEAN than it does with the European Union or with uh, United States. And therefore the ASEAN-China relationship is very, very important. And that's why it's very important for ASEAN to speak with a united voice and tell both China and United States, we, we, we say United States, we love you. We wanna have good ties with you. But at the same time, United States, you should know that we love China. We also want to trade with China. So you don't ask us to choose. And I think that's the big message. And I think if ASEAN can send a united message to both countries, that's the best way of protecting ourselves. And I think in the case of Indonesia, I think here is an opportunity. You know, they were discussing the implications for Indonesia. Here's an opportunity for Indonesia to exercise leadership of ASEAN. As you know, Indonesia is by far the biggest member of ASEAN your population is much bigger than any other ASEAN country. And so I think Indonesia, the rest of other ASEAN countries would be very happy to see leadership from Indonesia in this area. And I hope that the Gorka Institute will also discuss uh, how Indonesia can provide greater leadership of ASEAN. Because if you can hold ASEAN together, uh, in the, especially in the next 10 years, then that is our best protection against the US-China uh, geopolitical contest. Now, let me just come to my last point, part five. Uh, how do we prevent the worst case scenarios? And my simple answer here, and I'm gonna end because I'm approaching my 40 minute time limit now, is that I think it's important uh, for the ASEAN countries and the other East Asian countries to speak out. And I say this because the trouble with we Asians is that we don't we, we are too quiet. We are too nice. We don't say what we really think. And I would say I, I especially blame, I don't know whether this is politically correct. I blame the Javanese. 
the Javanese are never very direct. <laughs> the Javanese always try to put, say things very subtly, very carefully. But if you are too subtle, Americans don't understand you. <laughs> so I think it's time for the Javanese to be more direct <laughs> and speak more openly and tell both US and China the same thing. I don't make us choose. We want to be friends. We want to be friends with America. We want to be friends uh, with China. And we also need to say something else, very important. One other important message we want to tell both United States and China is that right now we have more important things to deal with. We have to deal, for example, with COVID-19, right? And I'm very sorry to hear that COVID-19 has come back again in Indonesia, that you have a shutdown, we have to meet virtually. I cannot go to Indonesia to see you all because of COVID-19. So why don't we press the pause button on the US-China geopolitical contest so that all of us, US, China, and everybody else, work, let's work together to kill COVID-19. That, that should be the priority. We shouldn't be fighting each other. We should be supporting each other in the fight against COVID-19. And because there's no cooperation, other countries are suffering from more COVID-19. Uh, uh, and here, I want to emphasize that one image I have used, you know, one message that we can all give together to the US and China in the simple terms. Sometimes it's best to give the message very simply. And I use a very simple boat metaphor to explain how the world has changed. So I say that in the past, when 7.8 billion people live in 193 separate countries, right? It was as though they were living in 193 separate boats, right? And when you live in a separate boat, by the way, it doesn't matter if one boat catches COVID-19, because COVID-19 cannot fly, so it won't hit the other boat. So the other boat is safe, right? And if we were all in separate boats, like in the past, COVID-19 wouldn't affect us. But what's happened is that because the world has shrunk, you know, because of globalization, we live in a very small, interdependent, interconnected space. And so the 7.8 billion people no longer live in 193 separate boats. The 7.8 billion people live in 193 separate cabins on the same boat. And we know we are on the same boat because when, when, when one cabin got COVID-19, all 193 cabins got COVID-19. We are on the same boat. Now, as you know, if all of you had been on a boat, now assuming you're on a boat on a cruise liner, and let's say one of the cabins catches fire, what's the first thing you do? The first thing you do is put out the fire. But when COVID-19 broke out, the United States, instead of cooperating with China to put out the fire, United States said, who started this fire? Let's find out who started it. Now, that's the stupidest thing to do. Now, if you're on a different boat, you can argue who started the fire. But if you're on the same boat, put out the fire first. And similarly, on climate change, also, we need to cooperate on climate change. So the message that we should all send, and I hope all young Indonesians will send also to both United States and China, the common message should be, we have more important things to deal with today, like COVID-19, like climate change. 
So let's stop this contest for a while. Let's press the pause button and let's carry on. So I hope that you will join me in conveying this message to the United States and China. Thank you very much. And I'm happy to respond to your questions. Let me just add an important point here. Please think of the most difficult questions. Because if the question is easy, it's very hard to answer. If the question is difficult, it's very easy to answer. Thank you.